We've uh, spent the last couple of months studying Jesus, and my topic uh, today is Jesus' heart for people. And so I decided to focus on um, a great New Testament story that I think best reflects Jesus' heart towards people. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to take it with me. Turn to Mark chapter 14, the second book into your New Testaments. Mark chapter 14. You may as well want to reach inside your bulletin and pull out the message notes. It has this particular passage from Mark as well as some places on the back where you can fill in some blanks later on when we get to that and some white space where you can write some notes. I like to call this the the story of the woman made to feel like trash. And so while you're turning there, let me let me share with you my story when I was made to feel like trash. I um, This happened a number of years ago. We were living in Columbus, and uh, we had taken a trip to Virginia, kind of squeezed it in the middle of summer, very busy summer. I was a youth pastor at the time, and uh, we were there visiting my parents in Virginia when we saw on the news that there was flooding back in Columbus. And sure enough, when we got here, there had been nine inches of sewer water in my basement, uh, that's a very pleasant thought, isn't it? And uh, it hadn't stayed there long, but enough to do the damage. It had come up through the drain, gone back down. And our basement wasn't finished or anything like that, but we had lots and lots of boxes. And they weren't stacked on top of each other. They were just on the floor. So lots and lots of ruined things. And uh, we came back on a Tuesday, which wouldn't you know it was our trash day. So I had missed it. It was a whole other week you know, before the trash came around. So I immediately, you know, got into this. And it, again, we had squeezed this trip in. We were busy, uh, had a youth Bible study at our house, you know, that Wednesday night, lots of kids. And Janet was leaving in a few days to take 40 uh, high school girls on a retreat up in Michigan. And, you know, um, so I had gotten through about half of the trash and was just kind of putting boxes and bags of garbage in my garage as we went along when about four in the morning on Thursday I woke up with this brilliant idea and that is that just a couple streets over in Reynoldsburg I remember their trash day was Thursday and so I thought hey this will be great I'll just you know so that's what I did I loaded this trash in the back of my car and about four in the morning I went over and found a house that uh they had their garbage out. I just put my garbage right there with theirs. I mean, it's not like I planted a flagpole here. I mean, they're coming to pick the stuff up, right? And uh, so again, came back, uh, went back to bed for a couple hours, got up, went to work. And Janet calls about nine, says, uh, there is a woman who called me furious. Apparently she had gone out, sorted through the trash, found something with my name on it, Looked our phone number up in the phone book. There's not a lot of fireballs in the phone book. And uh, called, really mad about this. So I thought, okay. So I got in my car and I went over there. And I knew I was in trouble. Because when I pulled up to the house, she had moved their trash to the other side of the driveway. You know, like this was the legal trash. And over here was the illegal trash, you know. And... Uh, but again, I knew I had obviously done something to bother this woman, that, that, you know, and I hadn't asked permission. You're right. So I, I went to the door to apologize. And I knocked on the door, and this probably 13 or so year old girl answers the door. And uh, I said, hi. And uh, I hear a voice from the back of the house yell, who is it? 
And I said, uh, uh, tell your mom I'm the man that put the trash in front of your house, and, and I'm just here to apologize. And I hear her yell from the back of the house, tell him to tell it to the police. So I said, I, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean anything. We had this flood kind of thing. And then I hear the voice yell, slam the door in his face. So this little 13-year-old girl slams the door in my face. And so there I am left to feel like trash, <laughs> you know, over my trash. Well, in this story, we have um, a woman that Jesus encounters who's merely seeking to show her love for Jesus. But instead of being recognized for her efforts, she's put down, she's criticized, she's made to feel like trash. And I think you see Jesus' heart for people here in the way that he comes to her defense. So let's kind of work through this story together this morning. Hopefully you have it there in your laps by now. Mark chapter 14. It starts this way. It says, Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priest and the teacher's of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and to kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or people may riot. Passover was that time, that celebration, where they recognized God's hand in delivering them from Egypt. You remember those stories from the Old Testament book of Exodus. And then Passover then would be followed by this seven-day festival, this Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so the context of this story is that they are right in the middle, these religious leaders, these teachers, these chief priests. They were right in the middle of leading God's people to celebrate God's sovereign deliverance. And yet their thoughts are on anger. Their thoughts are on revenge. They're out to kill Jesus. It's ironic, I think, that the most religious-looking people in this story are actually the most ungodly. See, it's so easy to look spiritual, isn't it? Well, on the inside, (laughs) all sorts of ugliness, all sorts of ungodliness going on. And the devil is so sly. You know, these guys, I'm sure, thought they were doing the God-pleasing thing, getting Jesus out of the way. See, that, that's the subtle trap of legalism, isn't it? Puts all the focus on the outside and ignores what's really going on in our hearts. Well, stay there in Mark, but there's a parallel passage that I think helps you kind of flesh this out a little bit more. John chapter 12. Verses 9 through 11. Let me read it for you. It says this. It says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests, these same group of guys, they made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. 
Now, step back from this story for just a minute because you could see kind of how these religious guys, these chief priests, these leading teachers, how they could sort of rationalize doing in Jesus, right? I mean, in their mind, Jesus had blasphemed. He had claimed to be God. In their mind, Jesus was leading people astray. Now, clearly, they had stepped beyond the heart of God to think that the way to deal with that was to kill him. But at least they could rationalize that. At least they could justify that. But Lazarus, I mean, his only crime was being alive, right? His only crime was breathing. But see, he was such a walking, living testament to the fact that Jesus had powers. The powers of the Messiah, the powers of the sent one, the powers of God. And Lazarus, just by his living cause people to say, hey, maybe we should take a look at Jesus. See, it's, it's just so easy to start rationalizing, isn't it? And when you start rationalizing, when you start thinking, hey, if we did this, then that would work out well. And, you know, really that would give God the more glory in the, in the, in the long run. And you start justifying it. It's just so easy to start down that road. See, these religious guys, these chief priests, these teachers, they had stopped asking what would God want? And instead they had started asking, what is it that I need to do to make happen what I think God would want? See, as you live your life, which of those questions is driving you? What would God want as I face this situation? Or have you got it all figured out, see? And you're just going about your life thinking, well, what do I need to do to make it happen? These religious leaders, they had allowed their desire to follow God to be crowded out by what they had already determined that God would want. And that's a dangerous thing when that happens. Well, back to Mark 14, into this context of what's going on here, this wrong thinking, this movement away from what God would want to what I think God wants me to, what I've already concluded God would want and what I need to do, into that context steps this woman with an alabaster box. It says, verse 3, that while he, Jesus, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she broke the jar and she poured the perfume on his head. And some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. See, this, this woman approaches with this, this extravagant act of worship. But these religious guys, they make her feel like trash. They criticize her wastefulness. Now again, a year's worth of wages of perfume. Probably in our culture, our day, we're talking about 
a bottle of perfume that was probably worth thirty, forty thousand dollars. I mean, chances are, if some of us were there, we'd have criticized too, right? I mean, we'd have thought, man, do you know we could have used that money to catch up our offerings? I mean, do you know how many Ugandan orphans we could have, you know, fed with that amount of money? And listen to what Tim Hughes, or Kent Hughes, writes. He says this. He says, what an astounding moment. This woman unexpectedly approached her reclining Lord, bearing a priceless alabaster vial of imported Indian perfume, very likely a family heirloom. And she snapped the narrow neck of the flask and poured a generous portion on Jesus' head, anointing him, and then poured the rest of the contents on his feet. Humbly worshipfully wiping his feet with her hair. It was an intensely fervent expression of devotion is found anywhere in the sacred scripture. You see, this woman was just so in love with Jesus. And the only thing she could think to do was to take the most expensive thing that she owned and offer it in worship to her Lord. So let me ask you this. When was the last time you had worship with that kind of abandonment? But you see, rather than than being admired for this act of worship, she's criticized. She's put down. And what I want you to see about Jesus' heart is how he comes to her rescue. Keep following with me. Verse 6. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you'll not always have me. She did what she could. And she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus' response is that he stands up for her against the most religious group of the day, the spiritual leaders of his people. Jesus stands up to them in defense of this woman. You know, I encounter people all the time who've been hurt. Been hurt by the church. Been hurt by Christians. Been hurt by religious guys. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're one of those people. If you are, here's what I want you to know. That our Jesus is a God who comes to your rescue. Our Jesus stands up for you. 
our Jesus is gracious and kind. And He's more concerned with what you do, with what you've done, than with all the things that you haven't done. See, I love in verse 8 when He says, she did what she could. See, because so many people, their impression of Jesus is that He's pointing at them with this long, bony finger about all the things that they didn't do. Jesus is more concerned with what you've done than all those things that you didn't do. He's adamantly pleased with you. See, the pattern of Jesus throughout the New Testament is that He's gracious and He's kind to those who come to Him in humility. But on the other side of that coin, it's also Jesus' pattern that He is strong and harsh toward those who adequately feel or arrogantly feel like they've got it all spiritually together. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the Gospels. You'll see that pattern of Jesus all throughout. In fact, here, let me, let's just pull out one. Matthew chapter 23. This is Jesus dealing with those religious leaders, those religious guys, those top spiritual brass of His day. Listen, let me just pull out some verses and, and listen how Jesus dealt with them. Matthew 23, in verse 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! In verse 24, He says, You blind guides! You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. In verse 25 and 26, He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. He says to them in verse 27 and 28, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like Whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside. But on the inside, they're full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. And in the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Verse 33, Jesus says to them, you snakes. You brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Now, I don't know about you, but man, I listen to those words and I think, man, Jesus, lighten up, you know? I mean, switch to decaf or something, right? But it's just a hunch of mine that Jesus knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he talked to that arrogant group of people. See, if you're here this morning and you think you've got it all together spiritually, you might not like Jesus as much as you think you do. And if He were here this morning, His words to you 
would likely be a little offensive. But on the other side of the coin, if you're here this morning and you're just barely hanging on, if your life is so messy and so inconsistent that you're, you're not even sure that you feel worthy being here this morning, then I've got some great news for you. You are right in the sweet spot to experience God's grace. Man, if you're still amazed by grace, if there's no judgment in you because when you look at other people, you think, man, there but for the grace of God go I. If you recognize that your righteousness rests totally in who you are in Christ, not in how good a job you do or don't do, then you have the heart of a worshiper. And Jesus is adamantly pleased with you. James chapter 4, the end of verse 6 says this, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Now, there's a whole bunch of lessons you could pull out of this passage. In fact, we could spend the rest of 2008 and probably well into 2009 looking at everything there is to learn from this passage, but I've just pulled out a few if you want to flip your message notes over. Let me just highlight a few things that as I wrestled with this passage the last couple of weeks, let me, let me share some lessons that I think I see here in this story. The first is this, that there's room for differences of opinion in the kingdom of God. See, so let me ask you a question. Had this woman taken this expensive bottle of perfume and instead she had sold it and brought that year's worth of wages and brought it to Jesus and humbly bowed before him and said, here, Jesus, take and use this for ministry purposes, would have that been every bit as much an act of worship? Yeah, of course it would have been. Of course it would have been. See, the problem in this story is not that the religious guys had a difference of opinion of how the money could have been used. The problem was the condescending way in which they looked at her for not doing what they would have done. Any of us do that? See, here's what we've got to understand, folks. There are definitely black and white issues addressed by this book. But I think what a lot of our problems are is we turn everything into a black and white issue. We come to things and and you need to have a reason why you believe what you believe on, on everything, on, on, on every situation you face, on who you vote for. Boy, but when you turn that stuff into black and white issues, I think you're in dangerous territory. 
You see the things that are clear, the things that there's no question on. You, you don't back down on those things. You do it graciously, but you don't back down on things. But other things, you need to come and you say, boy, here's what I really think the, t- the Scriptures teach, and here's what I really think the right response would be. And you know what? For me, for my family, that's going to be the case. But for you, who maybe see it a little differently based upon your understanding of this book, you know what? I'm willing to extend you the grace to be able to see it a little differently. To be able to have a a difference of interpretation. To be able to have a difference of opinion. Because you know what? There's room for differences of opinion within the kingdom of God. Here's a second lesson I think we can learn from this story. Is that in Jesus' mind, worship is a high, priority i mean think about it a year's worth of wages of perfume that's a lot of money to spend on an act of worship says something to me about the high priority jesus places on worship says something to me about the spending of money on worship you know can you worship god in a bare room with a 60 watt bulb acapella sure you can But it also says that there's nothing wrong. There's something very right about spending money to do everything that you can for the purpose of bringing people into God's presence and giving Him worship. Because worship's a high priority. To me, it says something about the priority that corporate worship ought to have in our lives. You know, that it becomes our habit. It becomes our practice, not something we do when we feel like it or if we're not out too late or any of those things because worship's a high priority for God, for Jesus. I think it says something about the priority of the, of the energy, of the effort that we put into worship. You know, it's so easy to just sort of sleepwalk through worship, isn't it? I've done it. I do it quite regularly. And granted, we're all different, right? And we'll have different expressions of what it means to truly enter into worship. Some of us are hand raisers, and some of us are dancers, and some of us are jumpers, you know, and some of us are whatever. The point's not how you look when you worship. The point is this, that you worship. That you enter into it with all that you have so that that when it's done, you have extended energy and effort into the practice of giving God glory because He's worthy of it. See, it's not that there's a right way to worship, but I know there's one very wrong way, and that's to do it half-heartedly. To do it casually. To to be like a friend of mine who who refers to the, the first part of a worship service, of a celebration time, as the pregame show. You know, there's something very wrong about that because worship is a high priority to Jesus. And this third lesson, I think, I think you have to understand that to really fully appreciate that. This third lesson is that worship is really, at its heart, bringing pleasure to Jesus. Isn't that what this woman did? She went through this action. She offered this expensive perfume all for the purpose of bringing pleasure to Jesus. 
You see, worship isn't just singing. Worship isn't just praying. Worship isn't just what happens in this room. It's living our lives for the purpose of bringing pleasure to Jesus. And then when we come together, corporately, we unite for the purpose of together lifting our hearts and giving God glory. And we sing, it's all about you, Jesus. But the truth is, in our hearts, a lot of times what we're really saying is, it's all about me. Because when worship doesn't look like I want it to look, you know what we do? We gripe. Well, we had to stand too much. It wasn't cool enough. It wasn't hot enough. It, it, uh, we didn't sing songs that I like. We, you know, the guy's next to me, his breath smelled bad. Whatever it is. We miss that at the heart of it all. Worship is simply this. It's bringing pleasure to Jesus. Whether it's what happens in this room or what happens through our lives during the week, it's living in such a way to bring pleasure to Jesus. Lesson number four is just this. I think that most of us are too critical of each other. See, are you the kind of person that is a grace extender? Or are you a critic? The religious guys in this story, they were the criticizers, weren't they? But Jesus, in, 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 in contrast to that, extends grace. See, I, I think we ought to try to, as we deal with other people, I, I think we ought to try to think the best about them as long as we can. Now, sometimes people don't let you keep thinking the best out of them because they prove that they're not out for the best for you. And when that happens, Jesus didn't have any trouble being strong either. We saw that, right? But I think as long as you can, when, when you run into conflict with people, I think, I think you start by trying to think the best about them for as long as you can. I think you give people the benefit of the doubt for as long as you can until they prove that you can't anymore. I think that when people mess up, you think, you know what, I mess up too. And you do all you can to extend grace. A friend of mine uh, told me a story one time that, that uh, has always stuck with me. His dad was a pastor. And his dad was having lunch with another pastor friend who, in their practice of faith, didn't eat meat. And so they were meeting for lunch getting together and they ordered kind of you know as as they were talking not paying any attention and and when the food came they realized that my friend's dad had ordered something without meat out of deference to his friend and his friend had ordered something with meat out of deference to his friend there's just something awfully gracious about that story isn't there that, that we would be so 
concerned about the other person. So looking to extend grace. I think that's what pleases the heart of God. It was definitely the practice of Jesus. And then one more lesson, which I think really sums up this story and the biggest aspect, is that the only adequate response to Jesus is to give him all you have. See, this woman, she was just so in love with Jesus that all she could think to do was to take the most expensive thing that she had and to offer it in worship to him. Now, for most of us, we live in an affluent country. No matter how meager your circumstance is compared to the world, you're filthy, stinking rich. Most of us, the most expensive, valuable thing we have isn't financial stuff, it's our time. And so the question we got to ask is, man, how am I giving that to Jesus? Because the truth of the matter is, when I'm honest with myself, I realize that for the most part, my devotion to Jesus cost me very little. And the only adequate response to Jesus is to give him, it every, give him everything. Give him all that I have. Well, if I were to sum up Jesus' heart towards people, it was that he was gracious and kind and loving. You know, Christians should be the most gracious people to walk the earth. And yet, sad to say... That's often not the case. That often we're the most critical. We're the most judgmental. We're the most condescending people. Forgive us, Jesus, for being so unlike you. Well, let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we just recognize you again for the things that we said earlier, that you are the, the glorious one. You're the king above all kings. You, there's no God like you. There's no other big G gods up there. But you, 